centers for the day and they are here demanding living wages child care wages are way too low welcome to where's my village fortune's podcast about the child care crisis in america and stories of people who are trying to fix it i'm ellen mcgirt an editor at fortune where i established the race and inclusive leadership beat in 2016. on may 9th 2022 Hundreds of childcare workers across the country walked out of their workplaces and took to the streets. They called it a day with no childcare. A day without care, a national day of action, gives us a chance for the roles being played in the early childhood to raise their voices louder. We yes. are the workforce behind the workforce. After two years of a pandemic that forced 16,000 childcare centers to shut their doors, providers and early educators were fed up and demanding more. Wendelie Marte is a field organizer at Community Change Action. She helped organize the rallies. I'm still very high off of it, you know? You know, we had over 60 events <laughs> that ended up happening in 27 states in Washington, D.C. And the kinds of things that people did were amazing. We need thriving wages for providers. We need affordability across the board for parents. And we need this system to be built on racial justice. And we need to do something that's a little bit more disruptive to really communicate this frustration because we're at a tipping point. It makes a difference when you have parents and providers on the same, on the same page about what they're trying to win and demand it unapologetically. We understand the importance of the work that you do. That's why we are here. Our families are in need. Our city is in crisis. Yes. We need affordable child care for all families. Yes, yes. Now, like everyone listening, I was a kid once. And I was amazed to learn that the childcare options that my working mom relied on in the 1970s in New York remain among the few shining examples of what childcare can be when caring communities design solutions that work for everyone. Fast forward to today, watching the lives of parents with young kids really fall apart during COVID, it became pretty clear that we had learned nothing about what works for parents, kids, caregivers, employers, and society. Now, the pandemic did not create the conditions that led hundreds of childcare workers to go on strike. They just made them worse. Ai-jen Poo is the president of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I think what COVID helped to point out is that there is a whole infrastructure and a whole set of resources that are required, including a care workforce for us to be able to take care of the people that we love. 
This is a workforce that works paycheck to paycheck. There's no job security. There's no access to a safety net or benefits. And so we had meetings via Zoom with domestic workers. And I'll never forget the one meeting where one of our members held her phone up to the Zoom screen to show us that there was literally one cent left in her bank account. And we were only two weeks into the pandemic. The national average wage for childcare workers is $12 an hour, which makes childcare one of the lowest earning occupations in the country. About 126,000 childcare workers have left the industry since March 2020, and the financial hardships facing childcare workers do not exist in a vacuum. As small daycares struggle to ride out the rest of the pandemic, parents are scrambling to find last-minute care for their kids. I mean, it's impossible to find childcare right now. It's a broken system. Uh, Parents are paying too much, and then the childcare workers are not getting enough. The United States is falling behind on a global scale on this issue of investment in childcare. It's the stories of the consequences of a broken childcare system of women stepping back from their careers, of childcare workers struggling to make ends meet, of a whole industry on the verge of collapse. Those stories and all of their implications on our wider world that made childcare a topic Fortune wanted to tackle. But our goal with this podcast is not simply to show the problem. Instead, Where's My Village will explore how some communities, companies, entrepreneurs, and state governments are working to create safe, reliable caretaking ports in what has been a long-lasting, destructive storm. But first, we want to journey back through the country's complicated childcare history to try to understand how we got here. So we had really high hopes for this podcast. We were going to do what journalists do, assess the problem, highlight expert and often overlooked voices, and offer ideas that would make things better. We got a lot of that done, and it took us in some surprising directions that we didn't see coming. But fair warning, we don't have it tied up in a bow for you. We don't have any easy answers for you. Well, now that I say that out loud, I'm not sure that's exactly true. We came up with a definitive solution, and it was pretty unexpected. It's just going to take us a hot minute to get there. It starts with slavery. You can even start it at, the podcast can't see my air quotes, but like the discovery of America. Mary Ignatius is a social worker and statewide organizer of Parent Voices, a parent-led organizing effort fighting for affordable childcare. Mary says slavery impacts the current childcare workforce, along with other domestic workers, including nannies, cleaners, and caretakers of any kind. The history of separating families, of forcing labor, is clearly embedded in all of our systems. And so when you look at slavery and you look at enslaved African women losing the right to mother their own children, but forced to mother and nurture the children of their slave owners under brutal conditions, right? With no pay, with no dignity, with no autonomy, and then you follow that that history, the childcare workforce is like 96% women. And then the majority of that are women of color and are immigrant women. And so you have just this history of exploitation and being undervalued and underpaid. 
So if you follow my work, then you know that I wasn't surprised to learn that our history of chattel slavery informs how we need to understand child care today. But really, none of us should be surprised. Today, 45% of child care workers are women of color, and 50% of child care businesses are minority-owned. At the same time, Black and Latina mothers are more likely to hold lower-paying jobs and more likely to live in child care deserts. These facts just like slavery, are American facts. And often these inequalities have been created and enforced by government policy, policy based on biased ideas of which American women are deserving of support and which are not. Public policy and the decisions that policymakers make impact our lives in both invisible and visible ways. Anna Danzinger-Halperin is a historian of public policy, gender, and childhood. Dr. Halperin says the 1935 grant program we now know as welfare was biased by design. Most public policy assumed that families followed a male breadwinner model where men were working and women stayed home. So the original program that we call welfare, which was called ADC or Aid to Dependent Children, this welfare program was intended to support deserving widows. This meant white women, and many states were explicitly excluding black women. Uh, policymakers began to try to reform the system and push women to work instead of stay home around the 1960s, which is the same time that civil rights activism began to dismantle these kinds of racial barriers that kept black women from accessing it. The 1960s saw two parallel social movements champion childcare as a key to equity. Both civil rights groups and feminist activists fought to expand the government's childcare policies to include all women. Mainstream liberal feminists like the women who founded the National Organization of, of Women, uh, or now, recognized how central childcare arrangements were to women's liberation. But childcare is also completely an issue for women who had been involved in the civil rights movement. There's women like Johnny Tillman, who said welfare is a women's issue and recognize that welfare rights are central to women's liberation, and that includes access to childcare, but also the right of Black women to stay home and take care of their own children. And so when feminists began to argue for women's liberation and childcare as part of that, it's about all kinds of women who, who do need childcare. These social movements did lead to welfare reforms in the late 1960s, most notably the 1967 Work Incentive Program. These reforms did allow more women, including women of color, to access welfare, albeit with a lot of strings attached. So starting in the 1960s, we get public policies that require women receiving benefits to work in order to access benefits and fears that women would take advantage of the system all led to really invasive kinds of surveillance measures like inspections that would make sure that you weren't receiving benefits if there was a male romantic partner at the home. The 1960s also saw a newfound national confidence in government action, sparked by the election of JFK. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, there's really a, a large strand of optimism for what the government is capable of doing. You know, it's like what JFK was saying, you know, ask what you can do for your country. There's this 
sense of collective social responsibility to tackle the issues that families are facing, including the struggle to find and afford childcare. This national optimism led to the creation of the landmark anti-poverty childcare program, Head Start, in 1964. Today, we're able to announce that we will have open and we believe operating this summer, coast to coast, some 2,000 child development centers serving as many as possibly half a million children. Head Start is a year-round program for low-income families that provides services for pregnant women and for children aged zero to three and their families, including high-quality childcare and early education programs. There was a sense growing in the 1960s, you know, with what was seen as the success of some of the war and poverty programs in Head Start in particular, that here was a way that we could intervene in the early years and really begin to improve child development as well as provide you know, training programs for black mothers, for example, through Head Start. So there's this sense of optimism that you know, this is working and now we can also expand it. And that's where the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971 comes in. It was really seen as an expansion of Head Start, whereas Head Start was only available for um, low-income families the CDA could be a new universal child care program available to all families. And it seemed like the Nixon administration was on board with that in the late 1960s when Richard Nixon came to office. Yeah, you heard that right. There was, in fact, universal political support for universal child care in America. If you have a time machine, go back there and enjoy it. It doesn't last. The Child Development Act of 1971 would have created nationwide, federally funded childcare centers for all Americans. The centers were designed to provide an excellent education along with healthy meals and a variety of extracurriculars. Now it's important to note here that between 1964 and 1974, the number of women working ballooned by 43%, meaning the CDA centers would have been useful to a lot of American families. So the CDA was supported by a large very diverse, very broad advocacy coalition. There were women's groups, there were religious groups, there were child development groups, there were unions, there were teacher groups. It was really a broad-based coalition. And coalitions are messy, but it was a pretty strong coalition working with people in Congress like Senator Walter Mondale, um, especially. So what happened? Why don't we have publicly funded high-quality child care centers in your neighborhood or in neighborhoods across America right now? Well, Nixon happened. The stand uh, that President Nixon is taking today, both on daycare and the wider range of services called child development, means simply this. In order to defend and protect uh, the president's commitment to the first five years of life, he is rejecting a congressional proposal that promises far more than we could deliver. So Nixon had been vocally very supportive. He had, in the early parts of his administration, given speeches about how we needed to put more investment in children's early years. He had brought in you know, people to the, his administration to work on it. But at the same time, he is trying to stay in power. It's 1971, there's going to be an election in 1972, and there's a group of right-wing conservatives who are unhappy with his administration. They think that his domestic policies are indistinguishable from liberal 
policies. And so he decided that he should have some kind of big signal to these dissident conservatives that he was on their side. And so the CDA was really, it fell victim to that. So the veto message was a really strong message that basically called universal childcare a Sovietization of the American family. And it worked. The conservatives didn't run against him in the primary. The Sovietization of the American family, another good idea, is lost to political divisiveness. Is that new? No. But Nixon vetoing the CDA not only torpedoed America's progress towards universal childcare, it also empowered conservatives to publicly fight the message that childcare was a universal right. Everybody lost that day. I see grassroots opposition to childcare really bubbling up after the veto when people sort of see that message and are saying, oh, yes, you're right, this is going to be an encroachment um, of the family, especially among women, conservative women, who saw any kind of government involvement in the family as a violation of their family privacy and their roles. Now, Nixon did find one way to further his party's childcare agenda in a way that we are still feeling today and with an outcome that will be eerily familiar to most of you. The very next day after vetoing the CDA, he signed into law a bill that created tax deductions for families that paid into the tax system to be able to pay for childcare. So these tax deductions for childcare are only able to be used by middle and high income families that pay into the tax system and can get that credit back. So this creates a two-tiered system in our federal childcare policy structure where low-income families are only able to access you know, some kinds of direct services that are underfunded and stigmatized. And it really deepens these inequalities of not only class, but race and gender. And it sets the path going forward, you know, up to the present where we have this deeply fragmentary, bifurcated way of supporting childcare at the federal level. And this brings us to one more federal law, the current policy in place to support low-income families, and it was passed in 1990. It's dubbed the ABC bill. Get it? Cute, right? And it's a subsidy system where low-income families can get vouchers to pay for childcare for as long as they need them. Now, not surprisingly, families must meet stringent income, work, and lifestyle requirements to access those vouchers, and those rules vary by state. So here's one more thing that's important to know when understanding federal support for families. President Clinton's welfare reform in the 1990s imposed strict time limits on all welfare benefits. So families today are ineligible for welfare after 60 months. This time limit, combined with the strings attached to the childcare vouchers, can quickly put today's parents in a tough spot. Say, for example, you're a low-income mother and you can't be on welfare because you've already hit your time limit, right? So you have to get a, a low-wage job. Those jobs that are available are on a shift schedule. So it's just, it's not supporting, you know, what children need in terms of a stable, predictable kind of schedule. It's not supporting your, your work schedule. It's just, you know, patchwork of a mess. These vouchers are sold as a tool of parental choice that empower women to choose where their kids will be cared for while they pursue their careers. 
but the vouchers only maintain their full value if they're used at specific centers. There is a lower reimbursement rate if your kids are in the care of a family member, a friend, or home care provider. Yeah, so choice sounds like a fantastic thing, right? You know, rather than giving parents real choices, what we're doing in our subsidy system is making parents make impossible choices and not giving them enough support for that choice to be a real meaningful choice. So it's pretty clear that the childcare issue reflects the issues of America as a whole from its founding and chattel slavery to today. But over the past 50 years, federal support for childcare, which could have made a huge difference, has taken the form of different policies. What they have in common is that they're heavily dependent on race and income and the truly slippery idea of who actually deserves care. The current system that we have for childcare policy in this country is completely shaped by policy decisions that policymakers have made over the past 50 years on the basis of their assumptions about what kind of families would be using these benefits, how deserving these families might be, and their own kind of moralistic visions of of who should be using what kind of care, what kinds of families should be staying home versus um, what women should be working. The individual and societal question of should women be working or staying home with their kids if they choose to have them endures today. And its answer is both highly personal and influenced by the times. For many moms, the pandemic forced them to answer this question in real time. You may have heard the term she-session floating around. If you haven't, it refers to the almost 2 million women who left the workforce at the height of the pandemic. As of the summer of 2022, only about half those women have returned to work. A U.S. Chamber of Commerce study of workforce data found that 58% of women who left their jobs since March 2020 said lack of childcare was the reason why. The term she-session was coined by C. Nicole Mason, the president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. In 2008, during the economic downturn, uh, men were disproportionately impacted. They lost more jobs. But this time around, women were disproportionately impacted. So we went from a 4% unemployment rate uh, to double-digit unemployment rate for women in, in just two months. And when I was thinking about it, I said, how can we frame this moment to help ensure that people understand that it's different than 2008 because of caretaking responsibilities? And I was being interviewed by the New York Times and she asked me about what I was saying and I told her what was happening. And I said, and I think we should just go ahead and call it a she session. For mothers who continue to work and keep their kids in childcare centers, the one that stayed open, that is, the cost can be astronomical. My husband and I knew immediately as soon as we decided that we wanted to start having a family, my career was not up for negotiation. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I have worked too hard to have my degrees and to get where I am. It's not up for negotiation. And that's one reason why we waited so long to have a family was because we wanted to be financially ready. We thought we were doing the right thing. Well, it turns out it didn't matter. Like, it does not matter. It's, it's going to suck you dry no matter what. Julie Gross is an educator and mom from Grand Blank, Michigan. She was in her mid-30s when she had her son, Adam, an age when she thought she should be ready to have a child. 
I just I'm counting down the months. This will be his last year and then he will start kinder next year, next school year. And I'm counting it down because they just raised it another twenty five dollars. So now we pay twelve hundred dollars a month, which is how much our mortgage is like. So we pay two mortgages. Adam is now four years old and he's enrolled at the local center that he and Julie both love, which makes her feelings about the cost even more complicated. I'm torn because on one hand, it is worth it. It is 1000% worth it. The way that he's growing and thriving, totally worth it. And if I could pay more, I would. But I also want to be able to pay the bills and pay our mortgage. So either I would need to make more money to pay more so that the teachers could have more. Because I think that what they do is so monumental for his development for the future, right? In 2020, the latest data available, the average cost of childcare in the U.S. for one child is about $10,000 a year. This is 5% more than the cost just one year earlier in 2019. Now, if you remember from earlier in the episode, the average childcare worker is making around $12 an hour, and about 50% of them rely on public assistance. So how is this possible? How is childcare so unbelievably costly for parents while the teachers who provide this care are paid so unbelievably little. Leah Austin is the executive director of the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at Berkeley. Well, we have this problem where the resources available to a, a program, a childcare program, are directly connected to what parents can afford to pay. And so while it's true from a parent's perspective, having been in this situation myself, it feels like this is outrageously expensive, right? And so Yes, it's like, well, how does that happen? How do how am I as a parent paying $10,000 and the person who is working with my child is is getting paid $12 an hour? Well, there's a whole set of costs, right, that we don't see in operating a business. And so when you, you know, pay all of those things, you end up having about, you know, 60, 65% is is the average available for your personnel. Well, when you're working with young children, you don't just have one teacher in a classroom, right? The the group sizes, the ratios are smaller. But by the time you pay all of your bills, you know, if you had 10 children and each family's paying $10,000, when you map that out, it doesn't really go that far, right? By the time you've paid the teachers who are working with the children, you pay the director or administrator if you're in a child care center, you've paid all your utilities, you really are left with 12 or so dollars an hour and not enough to pay benefits. So childcare is expensive and everybody gets a cut. I get it. Now this math only pertains to private tuition-based centers. According to 2021 data from the University of Oregon, 47% of kids age zero through five are in private centers, while 33% are cared for by family, friends, or home care providers. And the other 30%? They're piecing together a hodgepodge of childcare options that best suit their working schedules and lifestyles. That is when childcare is available at all. Julie Cashin is the director of women's economic justice at the Century Foundation. So even before the pandemic, half of all families lived in a childcare desert. So that's basically a census tract where there are more than three times as many children as licensed childcare slots. And for infants and toddlers, it's even worse. Two thirds of infants and toddlers are in 
deserts. For those who do have options, they're often not affordable. For a low-income family, childcare can eat up to 35% of their entire income. That's huge, right? And so a lot of families are just making it work as best they can and not necessarily relying on any sort of a formal care structure. Now, this patchwork approach has consequences for kids, but also for their mom's financial and emotional health. Women are exhausted. They feel like they've been running a marathon backward while juggling fire. And it has implications for finances as well, which impacts the whole family. So I worked with an economist, Clive Belfield, and found that parents of young children are losing about $13,000 a year because of these childcare disruptions, because of having to reduce their work hours, having to leave the workforce, or simply just not get ahead, not invest in their careers and take a break from any career advancement that they were seeing. And this is not just a problem for individual families. This is really hindering our economic growth, where you're keeping people out of the workforce who want to be in it. You're keeping people from working more hours. You're keeping people from getting ahead in their careers, saving for their retirement. And in turn, that means that there's less spending money for a family. So they're not spending as much in the economy. And that has kind of a ripple effect of implications. So it's actually about gender equity, but it's also a core economic issue. This is exactly what we mean when we talk about looking at something through a gender equity lens. It's hard to understand in theory, but in practice, when it's about people who are working, making money, making a family, the implications become clear. While the ripple effect of implications, as Julie calls it, of America's crumbling childcare infrastructure isn't new, it's made a lot more waves over the past three years. Since March 2020, it feels like the media has been filled with stories of working mothers holding fussy toddlers on their laps during Zoom calls, fed up to the point of quitting. But many of these stories focused on just one type of woman, white professionals with the ability to work from home. The women profiled in these stories are just a small part of a much bigger picture. As of June 2022, the unemployment rate for white women was just under 3%, compared to nearly 5% for Latina women and 6% for Black women. Here's Mary Ignatius from Parent Voices again. We live in a white supremacist society that explicitly caters to a, a particular group. And so when that group is impacted, then, you know, the alarms get raised. A lot of, you know, when we talk about the childcare history, we talk about the Nixon veto of the Comprehensive Child Development Act. We have just this global pandemic we've just gone through and that, you know, there's a she session and two million women have left the workforce and many cited not having childcare as, as one of the main reasons for it. And so when you look at these points of history, you also have to see that these big national responses are coming because it's predominantly white women who have been impacted. Meanwhile, all along, there were women of color working in low-paid industries who have always needed childcare and have always had to figure it out on their own. And so we just need to recognize and be aware of those implications, but also say we can't design systems around women of privilege. So once again, 
Our troubled history with race and status informs the debate we're having now. That leads us to a big question. How can the U.S. redesign a system that's not centered around women of privilege? Here's Julie Cashin from the Century Foundation. So first, it has to make childcare affordable for every family. It has to value the workforce and make sure that they are compensated well and they have a voice in the process. It has to make sure that children are safe, nurtured, and learning in high-quality settings that really meet their cultural competency. It has to have a social justice lens to address the fact that, you know, Black children and, and Latina children have often been left behind the hardest because of structural racism and because of poor policy choices that have been made over time. So it has to be really thoughtful about that. It has to guarantee public financing that is stable and covers all of the needed costs. And then also it should be connected to a universal pre-K program and paid family and medical leave to make sure that people can care for their newborn children and take the time that they need out of the workforce. And Mary Ignatius has a simple suggestion. Start by investing in childcare providers. We often talk about the 1% as the job creators. No, give the money to the childcare providers and watch the jobs they'll create because it'll not just be jobs of hiring assistants and staff and drivers and, you know, the support they need. But it's the jobs the families will be able to have because they have stable childcare. Like if we had childcare popping off on every corner, like we had Starbucks, it would be a game changer. So as Mary says, listen up and watch the money roll in. In Julie Cashin's opinion, creating a childcare system that equitably serves all women has an almost otherworldly amount of potential. Improving childcare is a magical win for all policy. Like I just, I can't even state that enough. And, and maybe we don't believe in magic, so let me just be real about it, right? It's the pathway to progress on gender, racial, and economic equity. It invests in healthy child development and family well-being. It improves educational outcomes and economic growth and prosperity. It does all those things, right? You know, and so... And when you think of it that way, you're like, wait, why would anyone oppose this thing? Well, what it does is, you know, it hurts somebody who wants to maintain power among men, right? If women now have the ability to earn as much and uh, make sure their children are safe and healthy while they are earning, then that means that they're going to build their resources. They're going to build their wealth. They're going to build their power and influence. And, you know, some people are not as on board with that plan. So if you've got a magic solution that solves a wide variety of problems for all people, all genders, all families, all communities, all of society, and some people don't like it, what does that tell you? It's October of 2022, for crying out loud. For those people who are not on board with fixing childcare, there are many more, much louder, and far more tenacious folks who are. And we are the ones who believe in magic.
Nearly every guest we interviewed for this podcast stated that they felt something has shifted over the past three years. Here's C. Nicole Mason from the IWPR again. I think for a long time, you know, myself included, women internalize this idea of not being able to do it or not understanding like why, why there weren't enough hours in the day. And now we know that it's a systemic problem. It's a structural problem and it has nothing to do with our ability or willingness to try to do it all. And Julie Cashin from the Century Foundation. I think that we still have a perception that family is an individual responsibility, that we have a bootstraps narrative where, you know, you can lift yourself up and that's all that you should worry about. And how do you help yourself? And that is all ridiculous. And if if COVID showed us nothing, it's that we are interconnected. What happens to me matters to you. What happens to you matters to me. We are all so part of the same community. And Julie Gross, the mom and educator from Michigan. I think before I used to think, oh, well, you decided to have kids, so like you should have been ready for this. Okay, well, I went that route. (laughs) I waited. I got my career under control. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps, so to speak. You know what I mean? And I... We had a conversation last year, my husband and I, we can't have another kid. No, there's no possible way. So, yeah, we did the right thing, trying to be responsible. And what's our reward? That we can only have one kid in the United States of America. Like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Nicole and both Julies all noted a palpable shift. Public conversations and personal perspectives are starting to reflect a truth. The child care crisis is not the result of failings of individual parents who are either too ambitious or too lazy. It's a systemic failing. And our guests think that this change in rhetoric could spark meaningful action and that our past doesn't necessarily have to be our future. Here's Dr. Anna Halperin. It's not predetermined. We can bring together social movements and change the political agenda. So it's it's not like because this has been our system for 50 years, we can't change it, we can. We can and we should. Being a parent by definition is hard, but it shouldn't require abandoning the career you worked so hard for because you can't afford to pay a second mortgage for safe and reliable childcare. You shouldn't have to abandon yourself. And the stress caused by our current failing childcare infrastructure often overshadows how joyful parenting can be. Julie Gross was at her most animated when we asked her to describe her son Adam's personality and quirks. He's so funny. He likes making jokes. He likes goofing around. But he also does take after me and is a little high maintenance. So <laughs> he's been saying happy Halloween to people every day since the middle of September. Yep. <laughs> he loves it. He has about five different costumes I decorate for the holidays. So he came home one day and he was like, it looks good in here, mom. Like, it looks really good. (laughs) Sometimes we get in the weeds and we see how dire it is and how hopeless it can feel. But like, there's a reason why we keep having kids. You know, there's a reason why. Like, I wouldn't change being a mom for anything. And there are signs that change is coming. It's slow and it's gradual, but change is on the horizon. Here's Ai-Jen Poo from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I can't tell you, Ellen, for the last 25 years, how many of those years it has felt like screaming into the wilderness. (laughs) How could it be that we don't have 
childcare <laughs> available to working parents in this country that we don't have a single week of paid family leave in this country. And, you know, the, all of these different experiences that we've had over the course of the last few years has really opened up a whole new conversation about care and how essential it is. And the fact that we even had members of Congress talking about care as infrastructure, I mean, these things could never have been imaginable. Who knows what the future will bring, but three years ago, not a penny was on the table. So I think we are making progress no matter how you look at it, whether it's from a narrative standpoint or from a policy standpoint, and we have to keep going. We just have to keep going. Where is My Village is about those of us who do keep going no matter what. Those champions who know that America can and should redesign childcare to serve all families and won't rest until it does. We've reported stories across four different sectors about government officials, community leaders, employers, and startup founders who are coming up with reliable, affordable, and innovative ways to revolutionize childcare. These are definitely folks who believe in magic. Ain't no harm with your mind. Set on freedom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Beth Coet, Maria Aspen, Megan Leonard and me, Ellen McGirt, will be your hosts and guides throughout this limited series. This has been a lot of reporting and the stories can be difficult, but it is our hope that you will see the magic of what's possible, not just for working families and their kids, but for everyone in society. With your mind on freedom, Where is My Village is produced, written, and reported by Alexis Hott. Nicole Vergala is our editor. Original music is by Bennett Pastor. Our fact checker is Lushik Lee Lotus. The song Mind on Freedom is written and performed by the Resistance Revival Chorus. Thank you to Community Change Action for providing us with recordings of the National Day with No Child Care Rallies. Special thanks to everyone we interviewed for this podcast and to Moms Rising, who connected us with the moms we interviewed for this series. Moms Rising is an online and on-the-ground organization of more than one million mothers and their families. Megan Arnold is our executive producer, and Where's My Village is a production of Fortune Media.